Good morning. It's great to be here. What a wonderful time of worship. Thank you, Jeff and team. Uh, those were amazing uh, words that brought us into the presence of God this morning. We are in the middle of a series on faith. Uh, faith that moves mountains. I love that image that uh, I think Kevin found. You know, that, that sense of depth, that sense of uh, almost an invitation to go hiking. My, my muscles sort of feel an edge that I want to get out there and be in those hills. And that's what we're hoping the series is, a kind of invitation for us to, to challenge our faith, to get serious with God about our faith, to really be in his presence. Just a very quick recap. We have been dealing with a whole variety of amazing things. You know, the, the title of this series, of course, is Faith That Moves Mountains. And I assume it's pretty obvious to everybody that, in fact, we're not talking about probably moving literal mountains. Jesus was very good at speaking sort of profoundly and metaphorically. Uh, to move mountains would imply that God didn't put them in the right place in the first place. Uh, but the mountains that I hope that we are imagining are, are things that you could not imagine being movable. Things like that people would start to be a little bit more generous towards others. Uh, that Christians would more focus on what they have in common rather than what they have as differences. You know, that the world would be a more peaceful place. That we would cooperate together. That, that this church would really come alive with the nature of what God is doing in our midst. That our faith would really be consequential the way we live our lives. And we looked at faith that overcomes fear. Faith that, that you can hold on to in the midst of trial, in the midst of uh, struggles and uh, challenges. Um, you know, be, be, not to be fearful, but to be confident in who God is. Faith that walks in water in the midst of the, the troubles and turmoils of life. Faith that can, can penetrate out over the, the troubled sea and be supported by the grace and by the power and the miraculous presence of God. Faith that brings wholeness and healing as, as we wrestled with uh, Elizabeth so profoundly last week. Faith today that raises the dead. A nice easy topic for a morning. Yeah, life, death, resurrection, uh, simple. I have got special permission this morning. You've lost one hour last night. We're going to go for 90 minutes for the sermon this morning. Uh, I am joking. Uh, but we will not exhaust this topic. If you are inclined to think about speaking, you would have taken this in different ways. And uh, that's part of the reality. But I think that the uh, approach that we really want to take is that, that faith that really faces the difficult questions. But I realize very profoundly this morning that there's many in the church that have been uh, struck with mortality in their lives and in their lives of their family recently. I'm, I'm very struck by the fact that many are grieving and I would like to pray particularly for the comfort of those that are, are, are struggling with, with a loss in their life. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, we pray for comfort. We pray for healing. We pray for your presence. We pray above all for that faith that releases life and love into our life. We pray for all those here who have been touched with loss or grieving. We pray that you would meet them. We pray that everything that we say this morning, that everything that we sing would be a source of not irritation, but of comfort, a source of life and not of death. We pray it in Jesus' amazing name. Amen. You're probably wondering why I've got a split personality this morning. 
you know, I made a point of bringing up two sort of podiums, music stands that we pretend are podiums. Uh, we are going to do something a little bit different this morning. And in order to sort of I, bring this about, I'm going to start by looking at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the entry to the Psalter, the entry to worship and to praise and to the reflections of God in life. And in this psalm, there is a very special designation of two kinds of ways of going through life. And if we can just read this, uh, read it on the screen as I read. There are two ways in Psalm 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take this path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night, they are like trees planted by water, by streams of water, which yield their fruit in season, and their leaves do not wither. There are very distinctly two voices that I hear all the time in my life, and I'm sure you do in yours, both externally, that is, people around me, and in my own life. I, I hear the voice of faith, the voice that would find the presence of God, even in obeying the law even in studying scripture, even in living the life that we live, but the life, the voice also of the scoffer, the, the voice of the skeptic, the voice that calls to us and says, yeah, get, get a life here. Be a bit realistic about these situations. And we don't do this very often in church, but I'm going to be very explicit about bringing the scoffer into our midst. I'm going to, you're going to pretend I'm wearing a black hat over here or something that, that designates it, but I'm just going to walk across and we're going to bring the voice so that we can have a dialogue with that voice. Uh, and, and so hope that I can, uh, I can challenge you as I've challenged myself as I've thought through this to, to explicitly deal with those doubts and fears and those, the, the other voice that exists in our life. And so we're going to do that a little bit. I hope uh, you can tolerate that. The voice of the scoffer in Psalm 1 is, is subdued compared to the voice of faith. And we're going to bring in the voice of faith even more strongly, I hope, than the voice of the scoffer. So now over here, this is not you know, opinions that you would normally hear in church. Okay? So you need a bit of grace for this. But the first voice I'm bringing up is that guy. Uh, out of curiosity, how many people who know who that guy is? Anybody? Nobody? Surely somebody recognizes this. Nobody watches the Benedict Cumberbatch version of Sherlock Holmes. This is Mycroft Holmes, uh, if you don't know him. Mycroft Holmes in the, the new series is, is full of rationality and power and manipulation. Uh, he tends to be a sort of very rational creature. And he says this in one of the episodes. It's quite a profound statement. He says, everybody dies. Everyone dies. It's the one thing human beings can be relied on to do. How can it still be that it comes as a surprise to people? In other words, death is surely one of the ultimate realities of our life. And it is about time that we woke up and realized that is what Mycroft Holmes says. But there is an answer in faith to that. And the answer, I think, is, is never convincing in one particular component of that. But I think it has an unbelievably important significance to our life. One of the things that you want to ask is, why are we so surprised? Why, in fact, is it that death so often strikes us as unnatural and unexpected and, 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 and sort of you know, doesn't belong? C.S. Lewis said, why are we constantly surprised by time? 
Right? Why, why does time always rattle us? Always like, I can't believe how fast time has gone. I can't believe we're already in March. I can't believe spring is almost here. I can't believe that we're in 2020. I, you, know, you constantly are surprised by the passage of time. We're constantly surprised by death. And I think that the hint under the surface is that death is ultimately unnatural for human beings. That we are made with an eternal soul. That we are made for eternity. Not for, uh, you know, the, the, the years of our life or the, sometimes the days of our life. We are made for uh, eternity to enjoy it with God. And so there's a, there's a kind of hidden apologetic in our very surprise. Uh, our very nature of that surprise that, that hints that death is not what it all should be. It shouldn't be the final word. And certainly, as, uh, as a Christian, as a person of faith, when we speak of this, we don't stop at death. We continually maintain that death is something that we pass through. In fact, uh, St. Paul often talks about dying is not dying, but falling asleep. Jesus uses the same language in a number of places. He says, Lazarus has not died, he's fallen asleep. And you know, he's fallen asleep, we have to go wake him up. And his disciples are puzzled. And he says, well, yeah, actually he's dead. I'm going to go raise him. Uh, that, sleep, that, that sleep is a kind of an image of what death is. Not the final word, but something that we wake up from. And you know, certainly we as people of faith, we, we look death in the eye. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this specifically, but, but the Bible is full of death. People who die, people who have short lives, people who have long lives, people who suffer, people who, Christians who, who, who die at the hand of others. The Bible is full of death, but it's full of life as well. And death doesn't get the final word in these areas. I don't know if you've ever thought about how explicitly we bring that in in, in times of baptism. But baptism in Paul's mind is very much an enactment of a resurrection. The idea that we, are, we go down into the water is an image of death, and we come up from the water is an image of resurrection and new life. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That life that comes afterwards that, that we celebrate. I'm going to say more about baptism in a, in a little while, but baptism is that amazing identification that our life is with Christ's life that our life is associated in a dramatic way with what happened on the cross and what happened on Easter morning when the stone was rolled away and against all natural probability, against all possible words of a Mycroft Holmes, Jesus was raised from the dead. Our living Savior, the one we still is, feel is present and, and with us in the morning and when we celebrate communion. But the scoffer is not finished, of course. Uh, I uh, want to bring that voice too. That, you know, but death is a darkness, yeah, and loss and separation and grief and destruction, destructive in our lives. Death is horrible, right? There, there is an aspect of death that, that, that 
just won't go away easily. Death is the grim reaper, right? not the happy reaper. Right? The, the image of, of, you know, of a cemetery being haunted, the, the idea of being haunted, the idea of, of visitation from some uh, you know, very uh, appalling creature that dro drops into our life and, and harvests us for uh, life again. You know, that, that, that life is removed from us. But of course we feel that there's an answer to this too, of course. And I'll give several. Again, I think it's extremely important to recognize that, that we as people of faith understand the grief. I, I think that it's, it's such a profound story in, in John 11. I don't know if you've read it recently, but it's the story of the, the raising of Lazarus. And Jesus uh, recognizes the grief and the loss that's going on. And he knows, he's told his disciples that he's going to come, come and, and wake Lazarus, of, of, of raise Lazarus from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And yet when he gets to the grave and he, he recognizes the, the appalling representation of the loss and the grief that's associated with death, he weeps. God incarnate, who is life forevermore, weeps at death. There's nothing wrong, whatever, of us experiencing profoundly the loss of a loved one. The tears, the grief, the sorrow, the, the, the disorientation, the, the, the complete lack of center that we experience for a while, I think is a, is a right and proper thing of somebody who really matters to us. The grief is real, but the, but the, the ultimate victory is there too. Read the Psalms for the laments. Read Lamentations. Read the story of, of what happened to the people of Israel and multiple times as they lost battles because of their, their rebellion. There is grief in that loss. There, there is an anguish that comes from that. And I think you don't really recognize that until you realize, what if it were not so? What if we felt nothing? What if a someone who was part of our life and was lost and all you felt was a sense of relief, a, a sense of, ah, oh, thank goodness, that's part of the life is over. I mean, I mean, life can be difficult at the end and one can feel a little bit of a sense of, uh, of that reprieve, but, but you should miss the person. They should matter to us. We should be vulnerable to those kinds of losses. I'm going to share with you, to me, one of the most haunting verses in the entire Bible. Uh, a verse that just sort of, I don't know, it's, it, to me it's, it's like ten times more potent than any image of the Grim Reaper could be. And this verse comes from uh, the, the descent of the people of Israel in the book of, that's chronicled in the book of Chronicles. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 20. Listen to what this says. Jerome was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the king. Imagine that the final indictment, the final benediction in our life. Thank God he's gone. Right? That, that grief that we feel, that, that grief that's real, tells us that people matter, tells us that life has consequences, tells us that the world is not plastic, tells us that we're not just machines, tells us that we're not just bits in some computer program, that we have a heart, and the heart hurts. 
And, and that's part of what it means to be alive, is to experience that. And let's face it as well, that we are not always sentenced to death. We, we receive unbelievable reprieving from that particular reality. Our son, Alex, when he was two years old, had a miserable week that ended in a ruptured appendix. And had it been a few hours later that they finally diagnosed it, he probably would have died. Uh, it was touch and go for a while. But we got it back. Yesterday, we celebrated his, uh, the third-year birthday of our grandson, through Alex. And life goes on. Joy had cancer a few years ago, but we have her back. Our daughter almost died of cancer, but we have her back. We have numerous reprieves, and in those reprieves where we get a loved one back, we should exuberantly celebrate. We should give praise to God that, that we have those extra times in the full recognition that we're mortal. The Bible asks us to face our mortality, but asks us to do it in hope and in faith and in love. And greater still is the tragedy, not of, uh, of, of death, I think, but, but living death. Uh, the, the, the tragedy of a life that is unresponsive, that can sing the songs that we've sang this morning with a cold heart, that, that can walk by a, a street person who is in great anguish and feel nothing, that can see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful scene of spring, and have a heart that's still cold, of a living death that simply goes through the motions, can no longer respond to children or to parents or to needs or to consequences, can no longer feel compassion. That, to me, is even a greater grief than losing one who lived the godly life that we lose in, in, in love at the end of a long process. A, a life that is unable to respond a faith that sometimes is wrecked by circumstances. You know, when things don't go right, a faith that's so fragile that, in fact, if it doesn't get its way, it gets petulant and says, like, what point is God? I've met lots of atheists in my life, and many of them, it seems to me, are not so much atheists as, as you know, being, um, proving to God that they're independent, that they're, uh, you know, they're not going to be swayed, that God didn't give them his way, and so they're, they're angry. Are we angry at God? What do we do with that anger? Again, one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible is one that deals with this. Faith is greater than the circumstances of our life. I hope that you've sometimes had people who inspired you, not because their life was easy, but because they had faith in the midst of the struggles and challenges and, and difficulties of their life. I will be presumptuous and say this church has been through some difficult times. And to me, one of the reasons that I'm so committed to it is because it holds on to the faith even in the midst of the things that we've had to go through together sometimes. Not that it's been a ridiculously hard time, but there's been big knocks. There's been people who have cast judgment on us. There are people who have left in, in difficulties. We've had um, conflicts within, but we're still here worshiping together. That's the faith that triumphs over circumstances. Look at this verse in Habakkuk. It's a remarkable verse. This is faith that is victorious over the worst circumstances of life. Though the fig tree does not blossom, 
and there's no fruit on the vine. Though the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Is that our faith? Is that our faith that can overcome yeah, the, the, the vagaries, the difficulties, the losses of life, the, the, the circumstances? We've got many in our midst. Uh, Jim Wilson's uh, testimony to faith in the midst of losing a job, the, the faith of those who have gone through the hardest times, and yet they hold on in a kind of defiance to their faith, a kind of defiance that says faith is even more important than the circumstances of my life. And I return for the fifth and final point in this little response to the skeptic, to what happens on a baptism morning. I, when you come to a baptism and you see people who, whose lives have been changed, who were dead and were brought alive, were brought new life, who were made responsive to a God that they had ignored, that is the most unbelievable, miraculous thing that one could imagine. That, that what happens, that God has intervened in a life that was going astray and says, come back, come back to me. And they come back with joy and with, with, with confidence and with celebration. And we celebrate with them. What happens on a baptism morning is very profoundly a, a little taste of the resurrection a little taste of life that's brought new again, a new life that's been made to live. It's a marvelous thing when we have these things, when God touches a life, when God touches your life and takes something that was hard and cold and unresponsive and dead and makes it alive again. And sometimes that you may laugh and sometimes that you may weep. Life is messy sometimes, but God can be in the midst of that mess in the midst of those difficulties. Listen to, again, the words of Romans chapter 8. Really, you need to get to Romans 8 by going through Romans 1 through 7 and realize the, the rebellion and the, the, the loss and that we've turned our back on God. But in the midst of all of this, God has given us more than victory. And so listen as I read this amazing passage. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Nearly everyone. He did not withhold his own son, but nobody who counts, by the way, uh, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also with him give him all things or give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes with us, for us our living Savior in the presence of God, making our case. Right? Unbelievable. But we hope to believe it in faith. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, uh, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Living out in our own lives a bit of... Isaiah 53, no, says Paul, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is victory. That is the final exclamation point on a life that may have been difficult. Yeah, we'll bring the skeptic in just one more time. And this is the skeptic not of the Grim Reaper and not of Mycroft Holmes, but, but really of a, a failed engineering feat, right? A bridge that didn't meet, right? The, the gaps of life are very real. And so we might hear the skeptic in our own lives or around us say, but you know, what are we saying? Is this just words? You know, is it nothing but uh, a comfort, a, a blind hope? Is it nothing but a delusional state to be in that is really trying to jump this gap that still exists? The cold reality of the fact that you know, we won't be here 100 years from now. We pray to God that Forest Brook will be, lest the Lord come again. Right? But, but you know, are we merely fooling ourselves? And what would faith's response be to such a, a stone that's thrown in our direction? <coughs> I don't know how much you've studied or you've looked at the historical reality of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, but it is one of the most unbelievably attested facts of history if you look at the details. People can raise skeptical questions about what was going on, but they don't hold up to deep scrutiny. The fact that Jesus lived and died, and then something truly remarkable happened in the world is impossible to deny on the basis of the evidence. There is unbelievably convincing evidence for anybody who would look that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. But that is not just wishful thinking, but it's a historical reality that changed history. The view of resurrection, where one would be raised first and then uh, you know, before the end of time and then others would become, that, that was unique. Nobody held that view at the time of the, uh, the early church. It was a completely unheard of view. And yet all Christian groups that we know held on tight to the reality that God had intervened in such a way that he had proven who Jesus was by his death and by his subsequent resurrection. The resurrection is an amazingly attested fact in history. The historical evidence for anybody who looks, and that may be another series, is just unbelievably convincing. It cannot be wished away. It cannot be wiped away easily. Something dramatic happened. And perhaps the best possible explanation for those of us who encounter Jesus in the modern world is that he is alive, that we can encounter him, that those who seek him will find him, that God is in our midst, and, and that we can still experience that. Well, just quickly, and then we're running out of time, but make a, another connection. I hope nobody here this morning denies that they are alive or that life is all around us. Science has worked very hard to understand, perhaps, the way the universe unfolded. And the one gap that is just insurmountable is not the one that says life or death. It says, why is there life at all? I don't know if you know, but in the Middle Ages and through much of human history, people had a very simplistic view about life. Uh, they thought that if you took dirt and added water, you would get spontaneous generation of new life. 
you would get micro, well, you get uh, flies and, and gnats and, and various nasty things. All you had to do was, you know, add water and stir. What we have learned over the last, uh, particularly the last 50 years, is how unbelievably complex life is. Life involves the most intricate exchanges of the most unbelievable myriad of things to work out well, and it has to be able to acquire energy from the environment and pass that on to the next generation. That is a miracle. And that miracle separated between life and non-life, between what was dead and what was alive. And that miracle can take place still. It took place in Jesus, and it will take place in our life. Our hope, our joy, our, our expectation is that there is more to life than the end of life. That life continues by the grace and by the power of God. I'm going to get us to stand as we end. We're going to read together an incredible passage from Ezekiel 37. As we read this passage, I hope that the, the, the stage reality of what takes place becomes alive in our life again. As you read it, when we read together sometimes, your, your only challenge is to try to match your voice for the people around you. We can, we can cope with that. Just, if you, if you have trouble reading and thinking at the same time, then just think, right? But, but the, uh, the, the, the images here are just profound and amazing. The, the Valley of Dry Bones, right? In Ezekiel 37, amazing passage. I'm gonna go over here so we can read it together. Ready? The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O oh Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, and I had been commanded, and I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon the slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, say to the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up out of your graves, O my people, 
and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know I am the Lord your God. Open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place on you so and so. And know that I am the Lord have spoken and will act, says the Lord. Thus says the word of the Lord. Please stay standing. I'm going to pray for us and with us. Oh, Lord God, you are the God of the living, not of the dead. You are the God of the resurrection. You are the God of life eternal. You are the God that is worthy to be worshipped. We praise you and thank you for the way you have touched our lives. We pray that you would open our lives and those things that are still dead inside us that you would cause to live, those things that we hold on and we do not let you penetrate, we pray that those things would be given to you and that you would make us come alive with compassion and with faith and with love and with hope. We pray that the relationships between each of us would be healed and brought to life. We pray that the relationships in our family, in our workplace, in our neighborhood would be brought the life and the spirit and the power of God that we may be alive, that the dry bones that were barren and broken and needing sinews and skin, but above all the breath and the power of God would be arisen, arisen in our midst, that you would be known to be Lord, known to be the creator of the universe who brought life from non-life, who brings life to us. We ask your blessing as we worship and as we pray together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay standing.